Welcome to the Gateways Beyond Cyprus podcast, featuring weekly teaching from our Discipleship Training School. For more information, please visit us online at gbcy.org. So I'd like to speak this morning about beholding the beauty of the Lord, about looking at the glory of the Lord, about the key in our devotional life and in our spiritual growth of the Lord touching our eyes and fascinating our eyes with who he is and how he uses it to transform us into another person. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And if you would open up in your Bible to Revelation, book of Revelation, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. I remember one time I was just spending time in the presence of the Lord, and I heard him speak to me and to say that there is a door that's standing open to you between Revelation 3 and Revelation 4. It's like, hmm, that sounds like an intriguing word from the Lord. And so I turned there in the scriptures, and I began to read from the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And it was an invitation that I sensed at this time as I was waiting on God into a place of greater intimacy with Him, a place of greater desiring for Him to see Him and to know Him. Revelation 3, and we'll, say, we'll go from verse 17. This is the last of the statements that Yeshua spoke concerning the seven churches in Asia Minor when he met John on the Isle of Patmos that we find in the preceding chapters. And in the last statement, he says, Because you say, I am rich, having become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold, Refined in fire. That you may be rich and white garments that you might be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. See the church in Laodicea had wealth. And they thought that they had it all together. They thought that they had what they needed. And that they were set in their course. But he said, because he knows their works, and they're not either hot or cold. They're just toeing the line. They're just down the middle. They're just living that complacent life where they're not either hot or cold. He said, I wish that you were hot or cold. I want to shake you out of the, you don't even realize how much you need me. You don't even realize how much you depend on. You don't realize that you're blind spiritually. You don't realize that you're naked spiritually, that you're unclothed. You don't realize because of your wealth, because that you're just, you're, just, you're just going with the motions. You're just doing the thing that you think you're supposed to do. But you've lost your fire. You have lost you, the intensity of your pursuit of me. You need your eyes to be healed again. And the key for their hearts to be transformed was that they would be clothed afresh. And that they would have healing that would come to their eyes 
that they may see. And then he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He says, you don't recognize your complacency. You don't recognize that you're just coasting. You're just going along. Now, obviously, nobody is here. No one's come to a little island in the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea to coast, to just, just to be caught up in mediocrity. And yet, our hearts are tempted each day to compromise. Our hearts are tempted each day just, you know what? Yesterday, I danced before the Lord. Yesterday, I shouted. I sang a song to the Lord. I stepped out of my comfort zone. But today, I just don't. Today, you know what? We're going to be doing this every day. I'm going to pace myself. He says, you've lost your zeal. You've lost your zeal for me. Be zealous and repent. Turn around. And that word for repentance, there's two approaches to it. And often we've been taught the Greek version of repentance, which is the word metanoia. And it has to do with changing the way that you think. If you've struggled with addiction and you've been a part of anything or you know people that have been caught up in addiction and you're trying to get set free from that, you're trying to create a new pattern in your life, it's not only changing your thinking that helps you break out of the pattern of addiction. It's a part of it, but it requires us to act right, to change the pattern of our actions. And we start with small steps to change how we act, to how we respond to things in life. And our, sometimes it's, we emphasize spiritually the Greek aspect of repentance, which is changing, changing our thinking. This is important, but it's not the whole picture. We change our thinking but we also have to change our actions. We have to do something different physically. We have to do something different. And that's the Hebraic perspective on repentance, that it's a physical turn. You're going in this direction, and you turn around 180 degrees, and you go in that direction. He says, be zealous and repent. And within that, when we hear that word to repent, we need to know that it causes a changing in our mindset, in our thinking, but it also needs a change in our actions. So the last two words of verse 18 are may see, that you may see. And then he gives the answer in the first word of verse 20, behold. This word behold, if you want to circle it or write it down and underline it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
And this is the key to be able to see afresh and anew. When we need that eye salve to heal our eyes for our spiritual complacency, for our spiritual lethargy, that we are satisfied with where we're at, we need the Lord to come and to touch our eyes so that we might see afresh and anew. And so he says the answer is in behold. He says, behold, I stand at the door. And here's the door. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. Now, we use this verse is for evangelistic appeal. We say, hey, if you want to know about Yeshua, he's ready. He's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He, want to, he wants to come into your life. He wants to be your friend. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. But the first context of this verse is not to unbelievers. It's to the church of Laodicea. It's to those who already know him. And he said, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Can you hear the sound of my knocking? Be zealous. Repent. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. I'm looking. I want to dine with you. I want to come into your life. I want to sit down and at your table and I want to be with you. Now that word dine has implications for me personally. Being a foodie, I love to dine. There's a difference between fulfilling the function of eating and dining, right? When you eat, it's something, okay, I just need to do it. I don't understand. Some people are wired that way, that they just need to eat to survive. It's such a foreign concept to me, and bless you, if that's you, because life's probably a lot simpler, maybe a little duller too. But but the idea of dining here, where he says, I will come into you and dine, it means that it's going to take time. When you dine, it's not just quickly, I'm just grabbing a sandwich before I hop on the train to go where I'm going. It's, he says what? I will come in and dine with him and he with me. He's going to sit down with us. It's going to take time. When you dine over a nice meal, there's different courses, right, that build you have an aperitif maybe, or, or it's something, and the, or maybe uh, a mousse-bouche. You have just a little bite of something that just gets the taste buds going. Only the French guy responded when I said a mousse-bouche. <laughs> Do we know a mousse-bouche? A mousse-bouche is just a little bite of food that tantalizes the taste buds. Eat lunch is a while, so <laughs> hold off. That amuse-bouche, it starts to get, get you anticipating the meal that's to come. And when, when Yeshua is like that, and he's knocking at the door of the heart of the believer, saying, I want to come in. Will you open up your heart to me? Will you stop a moment? Will you stop with your busyness? Will you stop with the things you're doing and be able to hear? It says, behold. First thing, see. Behold. Seeing And hearing that he's standing there at the door of your heart, knocking, and I want to sit down at a table, and I want to talk. See, dining doesn't happen just because we're eating food. It's it's that we are communing with someone else. I want to spend time. I let the courses come one at a time. Let's take time to talk. How was your day? What was going on in your life? What moved your heart today? This is what he's saying. I want intimacy. I want friendship with you. 
What he's saying? Saying, I will come in and dine with you and sit down with you. That's the language to me of intimacy, of friendship, of conversation, of knowing each other. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants, we sang that song this morning, I want to be in the sanctuary. Seated at your table and surrounded by your delights. That's the invitation to intimacy with the Lord. I want to come in and draw close to you. I want to hear from you. I want you to hear from me. I want intimacy together with you. And then verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him say, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there's something about the throne and then the beginning of chapter 4, it's a continuation on from, from this. After these things, I looked, and behold. There's something more in the beholding than looking. He says at the beginning, he says, behold, I stand at the door. I want to get your attention. Behold. Don't just look. It often starts with a look, but it leads to something more in our spiritual life with God. In a moment when you're in worship or you're in prayer or you're in the Word, when you're spending time with Yeshua, there's just a thought that just goes across your mind. And it's often God just, just putting something there to see if you'll pay attention. Because He wants to go deeper. He wants, he wants to come into, in, into a place of intimacy with you. Often, when we see a vision, we get so excited... Or a picture, let's say it like less spiritual language. You get a picture, you get an impression in your spirit. You get so excited about that, that we're like, I saw a picture. And you want to describe your picture. But often, that picture is an invitation to sitting down with Yeshua and entering in to the place of intimacy. And he says, don't just stop there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in. But as we pay attention, as we stop and we spend time with them, then there is, and look, after these things, I looked, and behold, chapter 4, verse 1, a door standing open in heaven. I can remember at this time as I was med meditating on this phrase that the Lord gave me, said that I have placed a door between Revelation chapter 3 and chapter 4 for you. And I looked at the passage and I saw, yes, there's a door to our hearts, and yet, in chapter 4, there's a door to heaven. I saw a door standing open in heaven. And often that's how it is. We catch something of our hearts being open. And if we go through that door that's horizontal before us, the door of our hearts, we enter into a place where we stop what we're doing and we take time with the Lord. A door opens in the heavens for us to go up and to go higher with Him. I want to encourage you, when you feel Him knocking at your heart, and you take time to be with Him, you take time just to think those God thoughts and to, and to relate together with Him, look for the door in heaven that's about to open up for your life. Look for the door that's going to take you into a whole new realm and a whole new uh, uh, place of revelation. Now this is the thing about a door. Let's imagine these curtains are actually a door here. If I'm standing like the black curtains are the frame of the door. If I'm standing here, and the Lord says, and look, and behold, 
a door standing open in heaven. And I'm looking through this door. It's exciting. The Lord has opened a door for me to gaze into something more. And we're pointing at the frame of it and we're looking, but our perspective is limited when we're excited about gazing that way. What happens when you draw near? You've got this door and it's opened up to the throne room of heaven. It's opened up to the courtyard of heaven, the courtroom of heaven. As we come in, it's not until we cross the threshold, we cross, cross over through the door that our perspective changes and is broadened in an instant, in a moment. As, as long as, wow, there was a door open in my heart, I stopped to spend time, and then I saw a door open in heaven. And often, if we don't hit the first one, I mean, if we make it through the first door, we're so excited that he's opened the door, and we see something, we peer in from afar, and yet it's an invitation, again, to greater intimacy, to greater knowledge, to greater revelation with him. And what does he say? I heard a voice, like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you. And so the point and the objective of God opening a door is not just to get excited that God opened a door in heaven. There's a window in heaven. There's a door that's opened up to us. And often we stop there and we're so excited. Well, Lord, what's he going to rain down onto us? But hear the voice of the Lord that says, cross over. Cross over the threshold. Step in and your perspective will change completely. We step into a, do not new, a completely new dimension. In that moment, we go from this kind of vision that we see what's straight in front of us, right? Like blinders on our eyes. Like that. The moment we come through the door, do it this way. We come through the door, what we see only here straight in front of us. All of a sudden, our perspective changes where we see much broader. In the moment of crossing the threshold, we're inner in to a completely different room, a different realm with God. And so this is the, the pro process that John, the revelator, goes through. It says, after I, these things, I looked and behold. There's something more in beholding than there is in looking. It's looking with intent. It's gazing. Often God gets our attention in the look in our eye. He gets our attention by just an impression, by something, a, a whisper in our ear. Or we see, we see something in our spirit, man, that, that causes our attention. A, a verse or something, we turn there. And yet he's saying, don't just look, behold. Lock your gaze onto what it is that I'm about to show you. Lock your gaze onto me. Behold. Hold it in your eyes. Lock your eyes on it and hold it. Don't let go because there's more. There's an invitation to come up. And to see what I'm about to show you. Come up here and I will show you things which must take place. Immediately I was in the spirit and. What does it say? The next word. Immediately I was in the spirit and. And behold. Again there's a, a, an importance to how John is to look. And how he's to see. How he's to behold at this invitation to cross over the door between heaven and earth. The door of his heart and then the doorway to heaven. And behold. A throne set in heaven and one sat upon the throne. From this place John gives the most comprehensive picture and description of the throne room of God that we have in all of human experience up until this time. 
Yesterday we talked from Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, John was called high and lifted up. And he entered. He crossed the threshold. He crossed the door. That's your portion. In intimacy with God, when you walk through the doorway in your heart, it leads you to another door, and it's the door of heaven where you can come and behold. This is another teaching, but it's because our citizenship, that our birth spiritually is in heaven. So we have a dual citizenship. We are sons of earth, sons of Adam, but we have a spiritual citizenship where it says, Paul says in Ephesians that we are seated in heavenly places with Messiah Yeshua. That we have a citizenship in heaven and we're called to cross over into the place of intimacy. When he begins to open that up, don't just look at the door and be like, God's opened the door for me. Isn't it exciting? There's a, hey guys, I sense it right now in my spirit. There's a door open in heaven. I am. I'm not saying I sense that. I'm saying this is what we often do. We say, I sense a door open in heaven, and we're, hey, there's a door open in heaven around us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that powerful? God's opened the door. There's windows of heaven open. He, I think he's going to pour blessing. I think he's going to pour blessing down upon us. But if you have citizenship in heaven to be seated spiritually in heavenly places, the invitation when that door is open is cross over the threshold and enter into a new perspective in God. That your vision is widened before him and it's always an invitation to intimacy with him. Because when we see, something begins to change in our life. When we see and we don't just look, but we look and we behold and hold it in our eyes, something begins to change inside of us. Come up and hear and see. This invitation to John has your name on it because of Yeshua. Come up and see. But we need ISAF. Samuel was born... At a time when Eli was the priest in the temple and his sons were in corruption. And although he, Eli, was a prophet and he was a man of God, he failed to raise up the next generation. And so the Lord inserted, because of Hannah's desperation for fruitfulness and her pledge to give her son, if he, the Lord would grant her a son, to serve the Lord, a new son in, in the temple. And his name was Samuel. And we've talked about him already. But it says, in those days, Eli's eyes had grown dim. He had lost prophetic vision. He had lost the ability to be able to see beyond, to be able to see with clarity. And I want to say that in a visual age, we see more things than ever before. There's more things that are competing for the attention of our eyes, and yet our eyes are dim. We need to have the restoration of our eyes to be able to see the wonders. When John describes the throne room in heaven, he's talking about movement in heaven. He's talking about colors. He's talking about sounds. He goes into a 
full, multi-sensory experience of the movement of heaven, the colors like a rainbow and jewels and stones, and describes the throne and the movement of the, of the beings around the throne in worship before God. And it sets us an example that inspires us to this day of what true heavenly worship is like. He wants us to have those kind of eyes to be able to see and behold. And there's something that happens when our eyes are touched with salve and that we step out from the spirit of the age in this visual age that has caused our eyes to grow dim. It's said of David that he had bright eyes and a ruddy appearance. He was out in the fields from his youth. And so his, his skin was, he was in the sun. But it says that his eyes were bright. Oh God, would you raise us up to have bright eyes? One of the greatest compliments that I can ever receive is when people come up to me and they say, Matthew, there was something about your eyes. When we were having that conversation, something about your eyes that spoke to me, that touched my heart. Because we know that our eyes are a gateway from our heart. And there's a way that we express what's inside of our heart. Sarah will tell you, like, I, people can say, oh, you had a great message, or you impacted my life, or thank you for that prophetic word. But that, to me, doesn't matter nearly as much as when I get this compliment. There's something about your eyes that touched my heart. That spoke to me. There was life and there was light inside of them. I felt the love of God. I felt I, the love of Yeshua. In that moment. That's because when our eyes are healed. When the salve comes upon our eyes. And we begin to see. And not just see. But see and behold. Something changes on the inside. And we need eye salve. We need medicine for our eyes to heal us from the contamination and the defilement that has come. By all the things that we can hardly hide ourselves from. It's everywhere. And it throws our attention off from the revelation that God wants us to live in of the beauty of the one who sits upon the throne. The beauty of the one who we desire to be like. When he says, after these things, I looked and behold, there's an invitation in that. Not only it's how he looked, but he's almost saying, I looked, would you look with me? Would you come with me? Look and behold, come and see with me this throne room. Come and see with me this one that sits upon the throne who is worthy of glory and honor and power. The one who created all things and by him all things exist that were created. But come and look upon the lamb who is worthy. Who is worthy to be slain. Look at the one who power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing are ascribed to. Come and look with me to behold, to gaze, to look intently, to look with purpose, to lock our eyes like those dove's eyes that we're talking about yesterday morning. Give us dove eyes for Yeshua. Give us dove eyes that they can lock on and they're not easily distracted. It's hard in this day and age to stay focused. So much is going on around us. 
And yet there's an invitation to intimacy through beholding the Lord. You see, the way that God created our eyes physically, the way that he created our eyes as human beings, is that when we look at beautiful things, we experience pleasure in our heart. This was how God intends us. What is it that when you look at, brings enjoyment to you? That kind of resets you? We just take it out of like spiritual language for a moment. Is it a walk up in the mountains and looking at creation like that? Is it being out and looking at the vastness of the sea? Is it an art gallery? No? For some it is, though. That, that re refreshes, that replenishes you. Is it being in an airport and people watching? Some people love it. And they, and they see all the different types of, of, of faces and shapes and all the different kinds of people and nationalities and different things and the interactions. And they just, they love it. To watch the interaction. You see, God made our eyes that when we experience beauty, we receive pleasure. And it creates a desire to look and to see more. But we must realize that if He created us in that way, that before any created thing, we were made to gaze upon the Creator. We were made to live a life gazing on the one who came before. I love blue sky. Here in Cyprus in the winter it's cold, but we get a lot of blue sky throughout the winter. And I'm so grateful for that. When I get up in the morning, go out into a little balcony, just look out, see the pine trees with the blue sky in the background. Gonna be a good day. Get my coffee, grind it, weigh it, grind it, manual brew, grab it, sit down in my chair, open the Bible. Ah, it's gonna be a good day. The way He made us is that when we see beautiful things, that it gives us pleasure and causes desire to go back for more. <laughs> a Baptist preacher by the name of John Piper. He has this quote, he says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. God is glorified when we are satisfied by Him. Because He created us in that way. That when we look upon Him, when we gaze upon Him, when we behold Him, we receive pleasure. And out of that place of pleasure, praise rises up to the Lord. Out of that place of joy, of the knowledge of God that grows inside of us, He is glorified as he, we are fulfilling our created design by Him.
in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a summation of the catechism into one statement overall. And it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, the main purpose that God created man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper, he took with this idea that when we're most satisfied with Him, He's most glorified. He tweaked it by one word and he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by... Let's glorify God uh, by enjoying Him forever. To glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, the world says taking time to gaze at God, that could mean your personal devotion time. That could mean taking a walk with the Lord. When I, st when I started to have the opportunity to preach and teach, I found that the most effective way for me to focus in on it was that I would take a passage of Scripture and I would meditate on it, but then I couldn't sit still that long and I would take that Scripture that I was meditating and I would go out and I would take a jog. And I would just jog and as my body was moving and, and taking that jog and, and running, I would be meditating in my mind and it would kind of free me from the distractions just by my body going and doing that. And as I'm moving along, I felt like God's word would be moving inside of me and he would just begin to drop revelation into my heart about his word. And then that's how I would begin to be, take those things and to frame them into a message to be able to share. And, and for the first years of that, every time that I was going to speak somewhere, I would take the word that was a theme that I was going to speak on. I'd meditate on it. I'd memorize it so I'd get it in. And then I would go jog. And I would just have time with, with Yeshua. Jog with Yeshua and Him bring revelation, breathing upon His word inside of me. Because we are... We are a complete and whole being, and there's not a separation from physical and spiritual. And sometimes when we activate the physical, it stirs up the spiritual. And so by doing that, it was, would stir up inside of me. But I felt a greater move. Uh, um, I felt a greater um, intimacy with God as I'm moving, and I felt His Word begin to move into me and be stirred up inside of me to be prepared to be prepared to release it. And so I would run and I would jog and I would be meditating on it. What does it mean that David had bright eyes before the Lord? What does it mean, to, one thing have I desired, one thing have I asked, that I may behold you in your temple, to inquire of you in your temple, to behold you in your beauty, and to inquire of you in your temple. And then the Lord began to drop revelation as I'm moving and running and going with Him. The world says, you're wasting your time. It's figments of your imagination. world says quiet time has no effect. Time with God has no effect. Your prayer life and all. But this idea of beholding and this idea of gazing at God, and with a primary we do it, is through the Word. As it's revealed in the Word of God. As we take His Word and He begins to breathe on it, and it brings revelation to our hearts of who Yeshua really is. In our relationship to Him. God says, it's the secret to knowing me. It's the secret to knowing me. It's the secret to walking satisfied in me. It's the secret of, of living out your life in the place of transformation. It's the greatest 
agent of transformation in your spiritual life is to gaze upon God through His Word. To gaze upon God by meditating on what He says. Considering Him, talking to Him, sitting, dining with Him. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if you would answer and open up your heart to me, I will sit down and I will dine with you and you with me. And from that place, and behold, a door stands open in heaven. Look and behold. Come up here and see what I'm about to show you. This secret of beholding the beauty of the Lord is the key for transformation in your spiritual life in God. And we need to discipline ourselves to get in the place where we're free from distraction, where we can enter into the focus of our heart. That means embracing the quiet. It means embracing some of us are scared to be quiet with our own heart. Some of us are afraid because when we stop, we don't know what's going to come out of our own heart because we've spent a lifetime pushing things down and trying to hide them away, and we're scared to get alone together with God. And he's just saying, look, I just want to show I just want to sit with you. I want to dine with you. Come here and be with me, and I'm going to show you wonders. I'm going to reveal wonders of who I am. I'm going to show you wonders in my word, as the psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate it upon, uh, I meditate it by day and by night. On my bed, I remember you through the watches of the night. That literally, that our sleep is never wasted when our mind goes to rest and when our physical body rests, our spirit remains alive and active before God. And so I pray for my kids every night and I say, Lord, give them dreams about Yeshua and his angels. Teach them in the night. Teach them while their bodies and their minds are resting, but their spirit are alive. Teach them about yourself. Show them wonders. Take them on adventures in their dreams with you. Nothing is wasted and lost in the place of stopping to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Stopping to inquire of Him. Waiting for Him. Lingering. Having longer times like we do in the morning for worship and for prayer is training our hearts to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When I was uh, a teenager, and it was really, it was the alternative music scene at that time, and I loved, I would travel across the country to go to concerts, and I would go with my friends, we'd go to music festivals, and in that alternative music scene at that time, there was a genre of music called shoegazers, shoegazing, and I'm older than you, none of you probably know what that is, but in it, it was a kind of music, and it would be going, and it had, it was... You didn't dance to it. It didn't have, it wasn't rhythmic in that way. But it created a wall of sound all around you. And people would literally go to the concert and they would just be like this. But it was like the sound would envelop the whole place and the whole room. And they would just look down at their shoes during that time. And that's why they called it shoegazers. And, and, and you would just like enter into like the music. At that time, and I remember one time I was in one of those concerts, Starflyer 59, and 
I, I was just being caught up in this wall of sound and just enjoying them. Have you heard of them? And enjoying the moment there and in that, at that music festival. And, and I was thinking about, oh, man, this is so funny that thousands of us are come here and no one is, like, connected. We're all just like a bunch of, this is before emo, but we were just a, bu- a bunch of alternative guys. And we're, like, just gazing at our shoes here and, and, and looking down. And then I felt like the Lord say something to me. He said, you're here at the Shoe Gazer concert, but there is a generation I'm raising up of God gazers that have locked eyes on Yeshua and nothing can distract them. And their heads aren't down, their faces are lifted up. And they learn how the discipline of focus in their life with God to literally be locked on Him and not let go. To behold him and not let go. To see him in everything. I was sharing about this at um, a ministry in Israel one time. And, and one, of, one of the Israelis said to me, they, when you, you say the word behold, I kept thinking of this image of holding Yeshua in front of your eyes. That wherever you go in the day, you're just holding him there. Yeshua is there in front of you. And you go about your day and the things you need and you interact with people, but Yeshua is right there in between. And that you see him and the choices that you make and the decisions you make, you always have Yeshua before you. I said, it works. Beholding him, lock gaze, look intently, look with purpose. It's the secret of transformation in our hearts. Because not only did he create our eyes when when we see beautiful things, we experience pleasure and want more. But we become like what we look at. So as I said yesterday, it wasn't long when Levy started walking like me, even though we had different blood. But he was with me, and when he was watching me, and he spent time with me, he started to walk like me. He started to do things, his mannerisms, and all that, and it's the same way. So if the first principle of beholding is that we experience pleasure by looking at beautiful things... And it, it, it uh, stirs up a desire for more. The second one is that as we gaze, we become like what we look at. We begin to resemble what it is that we have locked our eyes upon. Thank you, Lord. It often begins with just a glance. Just a glimpse, just a smallest thing that we see, and it's like a test of the heart. I'm standing at the door of your heart. Would you open up? And he's just, he's just, it, 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 often it starts with a whisper, Matthew, Matthew. Just, just to see, hey, do you want to walk in friendship with me today? As if the Lord was saying, do you, do you want, we just hear him gently speak our name. Do you want to, why don't you come be with me? I want to show you something today. Learning to respond to the slightest impulses of Yeshua, the slightest impulses upon our hearts, the, the, this, the movies. You know, as you grow deeper with someone in relationship, whether it's your best friend or your spouse, like, Sarah and I can be in the same room filled with people, and I don't even have to look at her to know what she's thinking. Now, when we're having a conversation, I never understand what she's thinking. <laughs> but when it relates to other people, I always know 
And that's just the beauty of relationship. We have to pursue each other and stay, keep staying face-to-face -face all the time. But I can know exactly what she's thinking. And it just takes one glance over at her that we can acknowledge what each other is thinking because we know our hearts. We know each other's hearts. We know we, we, we have intimacy together. We've discussed all of these things. We've lived these things out. Something that could seem funny to us is not funny to anyone else. I just, I just if, if I look at her, she's going to laugh right now. Catching the slightest impulses, the, 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 the little whispers of your name throughout the day. And he's saying, come on, look at me, behold me, I want to show you some. Come and see what I will show you. Things that are going to take place for you. Things that are my delights for you today. When we catch those glimpses and we lock on to them, it brings revelation to our hearts. Revelation always demands a response. It puts us in the place of needing to respond by the weight of what it is that he reveals to us. When we behold, we become like the one we're looking at. Worship, adoration, our prayer will always lead us to a change. It will lead us to a personal transformation. My prayer... In leading worship is that I'm not the same as it was at the beginning of the set as I will be at the end of the set. Because I've seen something more. I've experienced something more. I've heard something more of the Lord. It's not singing songs. It's looking at Him. It's beholding Him. It's worshiping Him. Are you with me? That David, the one who is described in 1 Samuel as having bright eyes, eyes that were attentive, eyes that were quick to catch the movement of God. Alert, ready, looking, on the lookout. In Psalm 25, 15, he says, my eyes are ever towards the Lord. My eyes are, his eyes are always looking. They're always scanning to see how the Lord is moving and what he's wanting to reveal to him. Because he's given himself to one thing. To behold him in his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to break down this process from beholding to becoming. 2 Corinthians Chapter 3. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Thank you, Lord. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Is that familiar passage to you? And again, Paul packs a lot in his punch. 
He packs a lot into one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled faces, as beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. So let's break this down, this one verse, this morning, and look at it and how beholding leads to becoming. But we all, the invitation for transformation, the invitation to enter in to this mode of discipleship, this mode of becoming like the Lord, starts with an invitation that comes to all. It's the priesthood of all believers. There's no special, there's no elite, there's no uh, uh, ones that are significant above the others, but it says, we all. The invitation is we all. That means me. That means you. Say, I'm invited. I'm invited into the place of intimacy to be transformed into the image of Yeshua. I'm invited as a disciple of Yeshua to come in. This is not set apart. In the passage of Scripture, the context, Paul tells the story to the Corinthians of Moses when he goes up upon the mountain on behalf of the nation of Israel to encounter the Lord, to hear His voice, and to bring down that encounter, to bring down those words of God, and to give it to the people. Because the people were afraid. Even the leaders, the elders of the tribes were afraid, and they went so far, and then they said, you go on our behalf. But Paul contrasts here, and he says, it's not just about Moses. It's not just about the greatest of the prophets. It's not just about holy men or holy women. We all, everyone, no one is excluded from this invitation to intimacy as a disciple of Yeshua. That means you. That means me. That means every one of us. No distinctions. It's an invitation that is open to every believer. I don't know. If you ever disqualify yourself when you hear people talking about the level of intimacy that they have with God. Well, that's for someone else. But I can't relate to that. I don't know. I don't know. Is that really for me? Is that only for God's elect? Is that only for especially selected ones? Is that only for elite ones? Is that what only for someone who has the gift of discernment or has the gift of this or that? No, it's an invitation to each and every one. But we all, the next phrase here, we're going to break it down and see the process first, the invitations to everyone. The second one, unveiled. Unveiled faces. This is the story. So what happens? Moses goes up. He encounters the glory of the Lord. 
let's, let's read it here as Paul tells it to the Corinthians. In verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away or what was fading from him. Literally, the encounter that he had on Sinai, he went up into the firestorm on top of the mountain and he met with God like a man would meet with his friend. That it changed him on the inside and his face was literally shining. When God revealed his goodness to him, his glory to him, and that is the fullness of his character and his nature, he didn't hold back from him. He just said, I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to put you into the cleft of the, of the, of the rock here. And as I pass by, you're not going to see the fullness, but as you come, my glory, my goodness will pass by you. And just that, in the trails of God moving past him, his face shone. His face radiated, but he came down from the mountain. He was carrying tablets that had the ten words upon them, or the ten commandments. But he was carrying something more than just words inscribed by the finger of God upon stone. He was carrying an encounter upon his face, where his face was literally shining. He was carrying the encounter inside of his life of being in the very presence of Almighty God. And he came down, but he put a veil because he realized that it was fading away. And Paul says here, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds are blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil has been removed in Messiah. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Through Yeshua, by the Spirit of God, the veil has been removed. When we come into relationship with Yeshua, when we come into salvation, we don't have to have, to, uh, we, we don't have, to have a veil to cover a fading glory in our life. But it continues, increases. But the tragedy is this. That as believers, we are tempted all the time to put on veils so that people don't really see us and know us. We're tempted to take up masks to be able to look like something. Uh, I remember the first time I visited Venice. And in Venice, they're famous for these kind of masks that they wear at balls, right? That, that have or, ornate um, a mask that cover your eyes and nose and they tie on and they have, some have feathers and they're very, a uh, lot of glam to them and, and we, we bought some of those masks and that they would go to these kind of dances where they would disguise themselves under these different things that was apparently at some point in time in history the thing that you do when you want to go into a social setting. But I have that and like sometimes with, with my kids when we love to, like, we just continually, like, hide and scare each other all the time. They do it to us. We do it to them. And so I'll take one of those masks occasionally. When I've walked into a room, I grab it off the shelf and I put it on. And then I come around the corner. Ah! You know, like that. And they're like, ah, ah, you know, and get all excited. But as believers, we are tempted to put on masks. We learn very quickly in a religious environment that there's certain expectations of behavior and external things. And it's easier 
to try to hide things externally than it is to deal first with the heart. That's why yesterday, with this fire of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire, we say that God works first from the heart and then he works his way outward. He starts with the inside. But we try to shortcut the work of the Holy Spirit and we take up masks that says, I've got it together. I don't want anyone to see my brokenness. I don't want anyone to see my pain. I don't want anyone to see, I'm going to put on my church face. How you doing? I'm great. And we do it with each other. And we put on something rather than allowing the true heart to come forth by the Spirit of God. And he's saying it's, e it's easier to put on masks. It's easier to cover up what's really going on. And Paul exhorts us, he says that we are to know each other, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. That means that we know each other in our relationships, not about where we've been or where we are, but where we're going to be by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our life. That means that we don't leverage what we understand of each other in our weakness in our relationships. Okay, so I know this about them, so I'm going to just make a little joke about it. And to show them that I know what's going on inside of their life. But rather, when we know each other after the Spirit, we say, I've heard where you come from. I know where you're at. But I can see, according to the Spirit, where the Lord's leading you. The transformation that's coming in your life. What are the masks that you'd be tempted to put on? I mean, especially in a spiritually intense environment like GTS. Right? What are some of those masks? Just give me examples of what they could be. Hmm? Trying to be brave? Like, like what? Or a mask to cover it to should not allow people to see. Yeah. Like you've got, I've got my stuff together. I'm in control of my life. I've got it all figured out. I don't want anyone to know what's really going on on the inside right now. That I'm in need of a Savior. Yes, He saved me. He is saving me, and I will be saved. Can I challenge us that if the invitation is to all to come into this process of transformation, that we drop the masks? We don't pretend like we know more than we really do or that we're more spiritual than we really are. We recognize who we are by the grace of God and we lean into Him and we keep it real. We allow vulnerability in our relationships not to try to hide or to be someone else or to be something else. But we allow that vulnerability to come out and say, you know what, I'm going to take a risk to trust you, to show you where my heart is. But knowing that you want to see me after the Spirit, that it's not just where I've been or where I am currently, but it's what I will be. 
And then if the relationship is committed for the long term, which is the basic definition of covenantal relationships, it's a commitment to long term walking together, which is what God commits to us and what we should want to another, then we're saying it's not limited to just where we're at, but I want the joy of the seeing the process of transformation in your life as you see the process of transformation in my life together. And I'm committed to that. I'm committed to seeing you as you will be. And so when someone prophesies over you and you say, wow, that, mm, that's not what I experienced with my roommate this morning. But I'm committed to you to be the fullness of who God wants you to be and I will walk with you together as you walk with me to see that. Let's drop the masks. Let's drop the veils. Let's stop trying to pretend to be something that we're not. Let's not allow, allow um, pride and arrogance to veil insecurity. Let's not, let's not put a happy veil that is hiding the reality of our struggle at the time, what we're after is true joy that comes from the inside and works its way out, that changes and transforms our life. First of all, the invitations to each and every one. Secondly, unveiled faces. We're going to remove the veils. We're going to remove the masks. We're going to drop them and say, if for these next five months I'm committed to this journey together with you, and I'm going to do my best to live vulnerably, to live a real relationship. Guys, for some of you, it might be the first time in your life to relate to other believers in Yeshua from a place of honesty. In reality, committed to what the work that God is doing in each other. But it will accelerate exponentially your journey and your growth with God. Pride, drop it. Drop the veil. I've got it all together. I'm strong. I'm in control. You know what that says usually to people? I'm not letting you near me. I'm not letting you in. Not really to my heart. I don't know if I can deal with my own heart, let alone someone else. Drop the veil. Get real. Take a risk. Build trust. Take a risk on relationship. It's a big deal in this environment here. Authenticity is what we're looking for, for God to accelerate the process of transformation. But we all, with unveiled face, and third, beholding as in a mirror. This is the key for transformation, is the secret of beholding. It says, look like you're looking in a mirror. Look as if you're gazing in a mirror. I remember in the very first school, Don Fento was a mentor to my wife and I. He married us here in Cyprus on the beach and has walked with us as an encourager. Amazing man of God. And hopefully he's going to be teaching the last week of the school before you go on outreach. This guy is just a legend. Just to say he's a legend. He's in his 80s. He's still doing push-ups in the mornings. He's strong as many men half of his age. He's just incredible. And he's full of such life and wisdom, vulnerability, the whole deal. You know, and, uh, and he's impacted my life in such a deep way. In fact, the first time that I met him was at a conference with my parents in New Mexico. 
And my, I'd heard about him for a couple years. And, and the book you're reading now, Your People Shall Be My People, it was before that book, had, when he was writing it, before it came out. And, um, and we were in between sessions, and he came up to my parents' office and they said, oh, this is my son, Matthew. And as a young single guy, about 20, 21, something like that, he grabbed my hands, and he's got these big old hands. Give me, give me your hands. He grabbed my hands like this, and he, like, crushed them. <laughs> huh? Thank you. And, no, it's okay. And he crushed me, and he looked me in the eye like this, and he goes, Matthew? Okay, this is how I'm meeting the guy, the very first time, right? He grabs my hands like this, and he goes, Matthew, as the Lord raises you up as a young man, I commit to you that I will not be like Saul, who was jealous of the anointing that was on David, but I will serve the purpose of God in your life. I mean, tears were just coming down. I'm like, who is this? And I, it was partly because he's crushing my hands. <laughs> and the other because, who is a guy who introduces himself like that for the first time and says, I will never, as the Lord brings favor on your life and raises you up, that I will serve God's purpose in your life. And I will not, as an older generation, be jealous of what God's doing through you, but I will serve it and see you grow. And then he quoted like a whole chapter of Isaiah. <laughs> I don't even remember which chapter it was. It's probably like, arise, shine, for your light is come, because he's always so uplifting. And he quotes that whole thing, and I'm just like, <gasps> crying, tears coming down my face. When Sarah and I were to be married, there were so many people that we could ask. But we called Don and we said, we really felt that we wanted a father in the faith to marry us. Would you consider coming and marrying us in Cyprus under the chuppah? And not only did he come from Nashville for our wedding to marry us, and we had a very fun time with it, but he memorized the Sheva Brachot. He had Eitan, who's coming to teach you next week, record them. And he listened to them over and over, and he sang the, the seven blessings over us. Just amazing, you know, just to do that for, for a wedding. And uh, just an incredible guy. But he lives out this unveiled face. The first time he shared his testimony with us in 2000 at the school, of how he was abused and how he was mistreated by men in his life. And how he lived under shame. Even as the Lord used him in the Jesus movement. And became a pastor to many. But the Lord had to do a deep work in his life. And he began to open up vulnerably and tell us the stories. And he said, I want to bear my heart because I want you to get set free. And not hold these things inside of you for as long as I did before I finally got set free. And now I can share without the, the pain. And I can share without these things because God has truly healed my heart. And as a father to many, he said, I want to release healing of that. And he said, no, I want, this is how I see you. I see you as beautiful. I see you as powerful. I see God working in your life, but he said, it's not enough for me to tell you, you need to tell you, and he gave us an assignment that week that he was teaching, he said, every morning, look in the mirror, and speak to yourself, the word of God, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and he gave us, line after line, look in the mirror, and speak the truth of how God sees you. You've got to have an unveiled face. You've got to drop the masks to be able to do that. He said, speak in the mirror and look at the, what the word of God says over your life. 
You're the head and you're not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You are delighted in by the Father in heaven. And so on and so forth. And those masks and those veils began to fall off of us as we did that that week. By his instruction and example to us. Thank you, Lord. We all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror. That's why I was telling that story. Behold as in a mirror. That we're looking and gazing with God's eyes, God's perspective. And looking and gazing to see God, but to be transformed into that same image. Look intently, gaze. Enter to that place behold of the secret of beholding. So that's the third one, to behold. As we break down verse 18. Behold, to look intently. To gaze, to lock eyes. Behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Guys, this is the grand theme of Scripture, is the glory of the Lord. So if we're breaking it down, the fourth would be the glory of the Lord. Moses experienced the glory, but it was fading when he came down from the Mount of Encounter. But we, through Yeshua... Continue to look. We lock our eyes on. We don't let go. And we, the glory does not diminish. It's what it's all about. The manifest presence of Yeshua. His goodness. His character. His nature. It revealed. It's the message of scriptures. As we behold, we look intently at the glory of God. The, which is the fullness of His character, His nature, and His ways. It's the bright expression of, of his being to us is his glory. And it's the theme of scripture is that there will come a day when we have all entered into such a place of gazing and beholding the glory of the Lord. And that his glory is being seen upon his people. And his people are becoming to look like him more and more. That there's not a place in the earth that doesn't have the glory of God. There's not a place in the earth that the glory of God isn't seen. And there's the scriptures that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the main theme. The glory in the, the, is the character, the nature, the ways, the essence of who God is. When we behold, we're to look and to see the glory. And he says, as we do this, the invitation to all... Then we drop our masks, we lift our veils, beholding, looking intently with purpose, the glory of God, His character, His nature, His essence, His ways. He says, we are being transformed. In the process of beholding the glory, what we look upon reflects back to us and something changes on the inside of us. That is the way of discipleship. So when Yeshua called his disciples to come and to follow him, the idea of discipleship in the first century was that I would be covered with the dust of the rabbi's feet. That means that wherever he goes, I'm going to be right there in the, in the trail of dust that his feet kick up. I'm right behind him. When he sits down, I sit down. When he stands up, I stand up. When he sleeps, I sleep. I mean, in, ext in extreme... 
right, in Israel today, some follow rabbis in such a way, the rabbi goes to the bathroom, everyone follows. They're standing outside. <laughs> right? True? Crazy, right? In extreme? <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but the idea is that as we behold the glory of the Lord, there's a transforming work that takes place inside of us where we begin to resemble the one that we are gazing at. We begin to model the one that we are looking intently at. We are being transformed. Now this word transformed is the same word in Greek that we find in Matthew 17. Turn to Matthew 17 quickly because I want us to see the fullness of it's not a light word. Matthew chapter 17. This might say in your translation a, a word that's different than transformation. Now, after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigure is the same word as Paul is using to the Corinthians. He says we are being transformed. That means that what we looked like before, we're going to look completely different. And what happens is it's described, as he's being transfigured, his face shone like the sun. This exact context of 2 Corinthians 3.18. Moses went up on the mountain like Yeshua took the three that were closest to him as disciples, they went up on the mountain, and he was transfigured. He was being transformed. His face begins to shine. That's why we say that after this season of seeking God diligently together, that there's gonna, you're, you're going to look different. People are going to remark and say, you look, there's something different in your eyes. There's something different upon your countenance. The old vestiges of depression and oppression, the old things of sadness and pain, they're lifted off and there's a greater shining that comes on your face. Proverbs says that oil makes the face shine. The oil of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Oil makes the face shine. When we receive the Holy Spirit upon us, our faces begin to look differently. And so his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And we go on for the rest of that story. It's the same word. When Yeshua's face shone and his clothing was changed, he was transfigured or he was being transformed in that moment of encounter. Moses is on the scene again. Paul connects this all together in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, as we gaze intently, as we look upon, as we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we ourselves are being transfigured. Your face is going to shine. Your clothing, your, the area around your life is going to start to look different. You're going to carry a different atmosphere. The tent, you know, when we talk about the, our spiritual man, our spiritual being, we often draw a diagram of a body. And we say a man is a physical body, or a person is a physical body, and they have a soul, heart, inside of them. And then we make that a little bit smaller, and that's their mind, will, and emotions together, their soul. And then we draw a spirit inside of the soul, right? 
And then we get this, this impression. Has anyone seen that diagram or heard it explained of the tripart nature of man? But there's a problem with that. Spirit isn't contained to our physical frame. It's another realm. And it's not like our body is the biggest and then our soul and then our little spirit inside. <laughs> Guys, it affects the way that, that we see these things. In the spirit, you may be a lot bigger than your physical structure. You might be small, you might be short, you might be thin, you might be whatever, but your spirit isn't limited to your physical frame. When the disciples were walking and that they were going, and it says that their, the people would place a sick out and their very shadow would heal them. Do you think it's that they got on the right side of the sun? The people were getting those lame people and the sun shined. Whoa, 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 get them there as, as they walk by. No. It was that they were living out this transformed and transfigured reality to such an extent that they were, as the disciples of Yeshua that were received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that their spirit man and influence had grown, that it wasn't just within their frame, but it was the whole area around their life. I heard uh, an, a man from Egypt share on this, and he talks about that we have a tent of God's presence around our life. And it's where our spiritual man inhabits that tent. And as we give place, it grows and that our very influence grows around us. Don't think by the limitation of just, it's got to be body, a little bit smaller, soul, and then spirit inside all of that. No. Think of a framework that's being prepared, a dwelling place for the spirit of God inside of you. I think it should be, because it's the greatest reality, bigger. So that when I walk into a room, when I come into a room, the atmosphere changes. Because there's a tent of God's presence around me. That my spirit man is bigger than my physical structure. That when I sit down next to somebody and I engage them, that some of the spirit of God is getting on them. Whoop. Excuse me. There was three sizes there. Of instruments. I can remember being in a revival setting one time with my brother Nehemiah, and we were we had received wave after wave of God's presence, and it was touching our lives in such a way. And in those those times, as God's waves are crashing upon our heart, that we couldn't express anything, but we would just sometimes just go, oh. Like that, as we felt another wave of His Spirit hit us. And we were going back to our hotel, and, and we were there, and we're just like, oh, and we're trying to hold it in because people that didn't know we didn't want, want to freak them out. We're just nice guys, you know. And we got into the elevator, and we're like, oh, phew, we made it across the hotel lobby, and we're getting in the elevator, and a lady steps in. And we're like, oh, no. And I, we're looking at each other, and we're just like trying to hold this in, but we can't contain the transforming and transfiguring work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And at the same moment, it was just like as it built up the intensity, we both go, oh, like that. And we look over, and the lady doesn't know us from anyone. She just goes, Vroom, into the side of the elevator, and is just holding on to the rail as she's leaning into the elevator. And we're like, we, we didn't, you know, we're... We didn't know what to do. We just waited and we're just like, we're like, kind of like, and the door opened and we ran to our room. We should have shared with her at that time, but we were very young at the time. But the tent is bigger. Say, my spirit man is bigger. My spirit man is bigger. Come on.
Come on. Much more. Much more. And so Yeshua's face shone like the sun. His clothes were white. He was transfigured. And this is the same word that Paul chooses to use here when it says transformed in English. He was transformed. He was transfigured. That when we, all of us, drop the masks, lift the veils, behold, look intently and with purpose, we lock our eyes on the glory of God, His character, His nature and ways. We are transformed. The next one in verse 18 is transformed. Or we could say transfigured to give you the imagery. It's a big deal. Guys, it's not a light thing. The work of transformation inside of us is so significant as we become disciples of Yeshua. And it's a process that we go through and then he describes it when he says we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. To glory. This speaks. We know we've already talked about. We're looking at the glory of God. But as we're being transformed into that same image of the glory of the Lord. It's not all at once. There's a progression that's happening. We get some of his image of his character and his nature by his spirit into our lives. And we're being transformed from glory to glory. From glory to glory to glory, from glory to glory, until we come to the place of fullness, that when we see him, we shall be like him. That's our hope. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit in our life as a guarantee that the fullness is coming, that when we see him in fullness, we'll be like him. From glory to glory, progressive levels of transformation, moving forward on in our journey. The more we see, the more we desire to know Him. The more we know Him, the more we become like Him. The more we are changed, the more we are transfigured. The more, man, whoo! I haven't experienced my clothes shining white yet, but I have had my face shine. I remember coming out of a conference one time in Ethiopia where the glory of the Lord was poured out in such a powerful way. And I went out on the street and young people, a group of young people came towards me and they were pointing and they were talking in Amharic. And I walked right up into the middle of them. I said, what are you saying? What's going on? I just began to engage them. And they said, your face is shining. You look like Jesus Christos. <laughs> Didn't know them from Adam. Didn't know them from everywhere. Just came out of that place of encountering, of beholding, of looking at his glory. And I don't know if physically light was coming off my face. But something was being admitted that was enough that unbelievers on the street were drawing attention. And they said, you look like Jesus. Your face is shining. 
I want more. I want more of the glory of God. I want more of the glory of God to be released. His work of transformation, his work of discipleship, of, of my life being changed and conformed more and more into his image. So we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's a progression in our walk from, with him as we become more like him. And then the seventh point of verse 18 is just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is what we have to emphasize, emphasize and draw emphasis to. Verse 17 says, nevertheless, when one turns, or sorry, verse 17 says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The end of verse 18 says, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. Lest we are tempted to try to make this, the book ends on this process of transformation, this process of discipleship is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Lest we try to work it out in our own strength and say, well, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to find these masks. Look, don't find ones that you're not wearing. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and say, you know what, this, would you give that to me? Could I take that insecurity and give you my acceptance? Could I take that pride from you and pour out my love? Could I take away the frustration and the anger? Can I take out that religious mask that says you got to look like somebody else and you got to like do things like somebody else? And take that off and say, be who you are in me. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Even our ability to look intently, to gaze and to behold is initiated by the freedom that the Holy Spirit causes around our life where we begin to identify the glimpse. We begin to identify the glance, the revealing, the whispers of His heart to us. And our heart begins to respond and say, yes, Yeshua, yes, I see wonders in your word. Yes, Yeshua, I want to hear your voice. I want to know your voice. I want to see your face. I want to be with you. I want to be like you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's the Spirit that reveals the glory of the Father. It's the Spirit that facilitates the work of transformation, of transfiguration in our life. That reveals the, the process of, that we go from glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Part of your own signing up for GTS is to enter into this process of transformation this year. That's what it means to be a disciple. Is that we get to know Yeshua. We need to see him for who he is. And there's a desire to be more like him. And what we behold, we become like. And he works transformation in our life. So we look a lot less like the ways and the effects of sin and that the enemy has had in brokenness and pain. And he brings restoration and he takes us from glory to glory by his spirit, a work of the spirit, not a striving in our flesh, a yielding to the Holy Spirit where we say, yes, Lord. When we say, yes, God, we get up on the journey of discipleship and transformation. When we say, yes, Lord, 
to him. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes this process of transformation. An invitation to all to drop the masks and to look intently, to gaze upon the Lord, to see his character, his nature, and his ways. And by it that we become more like him and he changes us from the inside out. And we go from progressive levels of glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that's the invitation <coughs> to see and to become that we have here before us today. Thank you, Lord.